Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The SVOT Cantana is a safety standby ship providing emergency support to oil company personnel based in the North Sea. Safety, as the ship's company website says, is embedded in their DNA. But even the most advanced ship is no better than the crew serving it. It's a job that calls for maximum focus with no margin for error. They must be alert to any situation. Rarely do they expect the emergency to come from within. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, A Night of Darkness. It's April 2020, and the world is grappling with the growing COVID-19 pandemic. While many face strict lockdowns in an effort to contain the virus, for essential workers, like the crew of the Esvac Cantana, there is no respite. 19-year-old ordinary seaman, Esbjorn Morel, is one of its crew. He was actually, from the beginning, a very strong little boy. This is Judith, Esbjorn's mother. Really a perfect kid, not afraid of anything. He charmed everybody around him. I think actually around 14, 15, he was very much into the military and he was really keen in going out, rescuing the world. Suddenly one day he just came and said, okay, mom, I think I want to be a sailor man. And so at the tender age of 18, Esbjorn got the job as an ordinary seaman on board the Esvac Cantana. Whenever a person drops into the water or if there's uh, some issues, a health issue on an oil rig, or if there's a fire on an oil rig, then they have to rescue these people. I was proud. It was great. I was happy that I could really feel that he was looking forward to it and he was glad that he should go there. But, you know, I remember setting him off and seeing him on the ship, this very big boat. I was really anxious because I knew I wouldn't hear from him for a month. At that time, I didn't know what kind of danger he would be in. The job was a trainee role that also put Esbjorn at the front line of emergency situations which could involve anything from rescuing people who had fallen into the sea to evacuating personnel from oil rigs and platforms. Judith was proud of her son, but it was tough for her too. It didn't make things easier that the internet was hard to come by in the middle of the North Sea. If they are close to an oil rig, they can sometimes get some kind of connection. So very often it's Snapchat or Messenger. He should just send a little message. If I'm lucky, it's a couple of times during the week. 
Other times, it's less. For Esbjörn and his shipmates, Friday, April 17th, begins much like any other day, as they keep watch for any potential emergencies in the oil fields around them. At 8 p.m. that evening, Esbjörn and a colleague are working out in the onboard gym on the lower levels of the ship. Esbjörn finishes running on the treadmill and goes to sit down on a bench. A few seconds later, he keels over and collapses. Thinking Esbjörn had simply fainted from heat stroke, his colleague rushes to help him, only to find Esbjörn is not breathing. He quickly checks for a pulse. It's there, but it's weak. It was actually a really lovely day. It was like spring in the best times in Denmark. Everything was more or less in blossom. His sister and his father and I has been out walking just before dinner time. And then we was actually watching a movie together. Then he sent a snap to me where he says, hey, how are you doing? Just sending a picture of himself saying, okay, in two weeks, I will be back. So, you know, that was really nice. I knew he was well. At 8.02, the ship's captain receives a call from Esbjörn's colleague to say that Esbjörn has collapsed. And now, his heart is no longer beating. He calls for an emergency helicopter to be dispatched to them immediately. The response is devastating. No helicopter is available to make the trip. For every second that passes, Esbjörn's chances of survival decrease. Just over 60 miles away to the north, on an oil rig in Norway's Ekofisk oil field, anesthesiology nurse Gunhild Kavinen is on emergency standby. She is part of a five-person rescue response team. I've always liked acute medicine, and I've always been kind of fascinating helping people outside the hospital. Maybe because I live in the mountains, when you have two hours drive with a car and you can fly the same route with 20 minutes with a helicopter, the minutes means a lot to save a life. Back on board the Esvat Quintana, Esbjörn's colleagues begin CPR in a desperate effort to get Esbjörn's heart beating again. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation is a process that's familiar to all of us from movies. We all know that scene when a character's on death's door, but the hero is not yet ready to give up. They start chest compressions and give the kiss of life. The only problem is that moment when the person is revived. In real life, that hardly ever happens. It's estimated that nine out of 10 people that go into cardiac arrest outside of a hospital will die. And even if there is someone close at hand to perform immediate CPR on them, 
the chances that their heart will start beating again is thought to be somewhere in the region of 7 to 8%. I got this emergency call and it said that it was a red incident. Red means that it's acute incident on the English side of the North Sea. We only knew that it was something critical happening on a ship 20 minutes from where we were. Esbjorn's colleagues have already been administering CPR for 20 minutes without success. Then, a helicopter is finally dispatched from Inverness in the northeast of Scotland. It will take over an hour to reach them. Time to try the onboard defibrillator. The compact machine sends a high-energy electric shock to the heart to try and kick it back into action. But Esbjorn's heart does not respond. After a while, we heard that it was a cardiac arrest, but we still didn't know anything about the age. We knew the name of the boat and that they had talked to a doctor on the British side. That was all we knew. Gunhild and her team are actually the closest rescue crew to the Esavok Cantana and ordinarily would have been able to get to Esbjorn in just over 30 minutes. But the COVID pandemic has changed everything. If it wasn't for the COVID, we would have put on our suits and be ready in less than 15 minutes after we get the emergency call. But when we had this call, we were using a lot of time because we had to figure out if we were allowed to go. By 8.30, Esbjorn has been clinically dead for 30 minutes. With no other help arriving for an hour at the earliest, the realization quickly spreads that Esbjorn's chances of surviving are virtually non-existent. Another attempt is made to restart his heart with the defibrillator. It does nothing, but Esbjorn's colleagues refuse to give up. Here's the other thing about CPR. It's hard work. Continuously pressing down on someone's chest, their sternum, their ribs, followed by two deep, long breaths every 30 compressions takes its toll. Esbjorn's colleagues quickly establish an efficient system, taking it in turns to make compressions and take breaths. If nothing else, it gives Esbjorn a fighting chance. And so, on and on, they continue. After an hour, the ship's captain calls the company doctor based in Aberdeen and gives him the details. Despite everything they've done, there are still no signs of life. The doctor replies somberly, it is time to stop. More after the break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back on her oil rig, Gunhild and her team finally get the all clear to join the rescue. But with it being so long since the alarm was first raised, there's little optimism on board. I always try to be open-minded, but I was quite sure that I was declaring a person dead when I was coming to the ship. On the Esvat Cantana, the captain has been left with the harrowing responsibility of telling his crew to stop working on Esbjörn. But he just can't bring himself to do it. He thinks of the life that Esbjörn will never live. And he thinks of his family, waiting for him to get back home. And he thinks of the inevitable call he will have to make, telling them he has died. But while blood is being pushed through Esbjörn's system, and oxygen breathed into his lungs, there is still a chance. The only thing that absolutely guarantees he dies is if he tells the crew to stop. It's then that he makes a decision. They will not give up until a certified medical professional sees Espiorin for themselves, and they can make that call. After all, what else do they have to lose? I don't think you 100% get used to going to an acute situation. I used the time to plan everything in my head. I was planning how we could treat him, but I was also reading the protocol on how to declare a person dead. When Gunhild's helicopter is five minutes away, Esbjörn has been receiving CPR for over an hour and a half. The captain knows full well what the medical team will say when they arrive. That Esbjörn is dead and they need to stop. He begins to prepare mentally for the inevitable. But there is a slight holdup. We couldn't land on the ship because it's a small vessel. So we took some dummy runs to get the helicopter hovering towards the ship to see how we could do the hoisting part as smooth as we could. Esbjörn has now been clinically dead for over a hundred minutes. They have reached the end of the road. I just remember setting him off and seeing him on the ship, this very big boat. I was really anxious because I knew I wouldn't hear from him for months, and at that time I didn't know what kind of danger he would be in. First rescue man went down with the hoist from the helicopter, and then I was the second one hoisting down from the helicopter to the ship. As Gunhild touches down on the ship, 
Esbjorn's colleagues give it one final go at the defibrillator. And just then, something incredible happens. Esbjorn's heart starts beating. The people on the boat, they show me where Asbjorn was lying. Having the whole time pictured an elderly patient suffering from a heart attack, Gunhild is utterly stunned by what she finds there. That he was so young changed everything. My first thought was that we're never going to stop. At this point, he had had cardiac arrest for nearly two hours. And everyone knows that the outcome of this is really bad. My plan was that we should do whatever we could to deliver him safe to hospital so he were alive and his family could see him again and hopefully say goodbye to him, at least. But I didn't have any expectation about survival at this point. Esbjorn's heart is beating again, but very weakly. And he has not regained consciousness. Considering how long his heart has been stopped for, even if he pulls through, it is near certain that he has suffered severe brain damage. His heart was beating, but the breathing wasn't good enough to keep him alive. So we needed to secure his airwaves that he was getting enough oxygen before moving him. Aspion had cramps, was extending from his body. The arms was moving away from his body. And I looked at his pupils and I thought I could recognize this as uh, brain damage. Gunhild and her colleagues do the best they can under the extremely difficult circumstances. It's something to treat a patient in the hospital, in the emergency room, with a lot of people around you and a lot of equipment and medicine. We were treating this critical sick patient on a small boat, rotating in the middle of the North Sea, more than one hour from the hospital. It's a lot of movement when you come down on the decks in a small vessel in the North Sea. It was a small room. So we didn't really have any place to put all our equipment. It was also dark. To secure his airways, I had to lay on the floor. But this is what we train to do. We train in this condition and luckily we do. Because this shows that we need our training. Just after midnight, I got a call from a number I haven't seen before. I just thinking, hmm, that's strange. So first I looked at it and then I didn't take it because who's calling me at this time? But then I got a text just right after from the head crew. 
telling that I need to pick up the phone. The first word was, Astrian has felt on board on Esvag. And I actually thought that he was falling in the sea. Because, you know, I never thought that could be anything else. And then I understood that he actually had this heart attack. The other helicopter were supposed to pick him up. So we were just starting treatment and waiting for the other helicopters to come. Then we got the control over the airwaves. We were putting a tube into his trachea, to his lungs. So we were breathing with him. With Esbjörn's life in the balance, Gunhild and her crew discover there is only one medical technician on board the helicopter coming to take him to the hospital. But it will need two people to keep him alive for the journey. We decided to do what we could to deliver Aspion ourselves to hospital. But then we were back to the difficult part. We were in the middle of COVID. We weren't allowed to go to the UK and we weren't allowed to bring any foreign people to the Norwegian hospital. After a flurry of phone calls, Gunhild and her team eventually get permission to fly Esbjörn to the Aberdeen Hospital. Back in Denmark, Esbjörn's parents are beside themselves with worry. We didn't know what to do. We were actually starting looking on possibilities to come to Scotland. But it was during the corona time, so everything was shut down and there was actually no availabilities on any flights on that time. On board Gunhild's helicopter. We were just lucky that we came this far and we were absolutely not sure that this next hour would go smooth. His heart could stop again. More worryingly for Gunhild is the fact that Esbjörn still hasn't regained consciousness. Despite the incredible efforts of his colleagues, the simple fact is his brain has been denied significant levels of oxygen for the best part of two hours. We thought that he probably wouldn't give any contact anymore, that the damage was too big after this long time of cardiac arrest. Of course we couldn't sleep. None of us could sleep. I thought about how can I tell this to his grandparents? How can I tell it to his friend? And how can I actually let people know around me that what has happened? He is a very strong, physical young man. I didn't understand. How can he have a heart attack? An hour after taking off from the Esvak Quintana, Gunhild and her team arrive in Aberdeen and deliver Esbjörn to the hospital. I think it was around four o'clock in the morning. They told me that he had a pulse, but he has not been awake, and they have put him in artificial coma. For Gunhild, it's an immense relief to finally get Esbjörn to the hospital. But with his life still so finely in the balance, there is no time for celebration. We're still on duty, so we have to go back to the oil rig with the helicopter. 
and the equipment and everything. The pilots are not allowed to fly too many hours. But me as a nurse, we had to be ready for the next thing. For Judith and the rest of Esbjörn's family, when the initial chaos dies down, they are left with the cold, hard reality of it all. Miraculously, Esbjörn had made it to the hospital with the pulse, but the signs are not good. All they can do is sit and wait for more news. I talked with one of the doctors and he said, it's not to get you scared, but just to be aware that the longer time you have a heart attack and it's not in hospital, the risk for having brain damage is very high. So, you know, at the one point they were trying to tell us, don't be too optimistic, but at the same time, keep your hope. Don't let go. All they want is to be by Esbjörn's side. Easier said than done in the middle of a global pandemic. Esbjörn actually said that if we want to go by ship, they could sail us. And the Danish uh, foreign minister also said it was okay to go out in this kind of emergency. But then I talked with Royal Infirmary, and they said they only let people inside the hospital if it was either first or last, if it was a birth or it was a death. And they say, right now, we are not believing the last one. More after the break. Like many people during the pandemic who are unable to visit their loved ones, Esbjörn's family do the next best thing. An iPad is set up next to his bed, and twice a day, his family call him. It's heartwarming to finally see their son again, but it's agonizing too. We saw him laying there with all these tubes into him. His eyes was closed, and he was just looking like he was very heavily asleep. It was so strange because we could see that it was our boy, but we couldn't feel him, couldn't connect with him. At first, the calls are a little stilted, as you might expect under such testing conditions. Neither Judith or her husband, Bianca, quite know what to say. Most of their time is spent just staring at the screen, silently urging Esbjörn to respond. They scan the screen desperately for any hint of movement that might suggest he can somehow hear them. We were looking for responses every day. And you know, you can imagine sometimes that you see signs. It could either be that his eyebrows maybe moved a little bit, or there was a little reflection on his cheek or something like that. We tried to tell him, if you can just do something, and nothing happened. We couldn't see any progress. Day after day, Judith and Bianca call their son. Despite no signs of progress in his condition, they soon find ways to connect with him. My husband uh, played music for him from some Western series that they have seen. The Man Who Wouldn't Die or something like that. I was singing lullabies for him, one he had when he was a kid. In Danish it says, 
Solen er så rød, mor. Translated is called The Sun is Red Now. It's an, an old lullaby. Solen er så rød, mor, og skoven... Occasionally, some of Esbjørn's friends drop by to join his parents on video calls. But after four days, there is still no improvement. Okay, now we're on day four, and every time we try to wake him up, he doesn't respond as we want to be. When we look at his brain, it looks normal. But to be honest, you have to expect that it's not going to be the same boy if he wakes up. The longer Esbjørn remains in the coma, the more complicated things become, both physically for Esbjørn and for his family who are powerless to do anything. Then Esbjørn contracts pneumonia, worsening his condition. It's amazing how long time you can go without sleep. You come to a point and then you just get insomnia and just sleep a little bit and then you wake up again. Spend a lot of time sitting, holding each other, crying together. I think we were afraid talking about the possibility. My husband was actually going inside himself. I remember one point he said to me, If he doesn't come back normal, I know Aspen would have wished he was dead. And I feel the same. All the while, Esbjørn's pneumonia gets even worse. When you are in a coma more than five days, you begin to lose hope. Esbjørn's father is finding it especially hard to keep faith that he will pull through. One night, we went out to the forest and he just cried out to the gods for help, saying, please do something, please help me. Please help my son. Please let him get back. And actually, uh, yeah. Sometimes call out for the universe. You get help. Eight days after Esbjørn was brought in, the doctors finally solved the mystery as to why he is struggling to wake up. A scan of his ribs reveals that eight of them, along with his sternum, were broken during the extraordinarily long CPR process. They found out that his breastbone was broken due to the CPR. So every time they put him out of the coma and he had to breathe by himself, He couldn't do that because it was pressing on his lung. The doctors perform an operation to fix the problem. The following day, Judith receives a call from the hospital. I was out in our greenhouse, putting things ready for the spring and so on, trying to put my mind on something else. And then I saw there was a call and I, I called them back. And they said, okay, your son is not saying so much. And I said, of course not. He's in a coma. He's not said a lot for a lot of time. But then they said, yeah, at least he argued with us 
when we said to him that he was on an oil rig. And he said, no, he was on a boat. And I said, what? They <laughs> said, uh, we will set up the Skype so you can see him. Judith races to tell her husband the news. And an hour later, the hospital calls them back. We can see his eyes is open. That's the first good news. <laughs> we are just so happy. And then actually he's looking around the room. And then, you know, we start questioning, okay, at least he's awake. That's a good sign. Can he remember us? He couldn't talk because he has this tube in his throat. So he could only look at us and nod and so on. Then I asked him if uh, he remember me. He shakes his head. No. Can you remember your little sister, Rebecca? He nods his head. Okay, good sign. Can't remember his mother, but he remembers his, his uh, sister. There's still hope. Incredibly, Esbjorn's recovery goes from strength to strength. And slowly, his memories come back to him. I actually think it was first when we had him back in Denmark in 9th of May that we realized he will be the same son as we had before. My name is uh, Espion Wall, and uh, yeah, my mother is uh, Judith Moal, and my father is Bjarke Moal, and I have a little sister called Rebecca Moal. I'm 22 years old. The first thing I remember is uh, waking up to a Skype call from my parents, and I remember not knowing where I was. In my head, I was still out in the middle of the North Sea, but my parents, they tell me, you're in Aberdeen, you have had a heart attack. I remember all I say there is, okay. And I go back to uh, sleep. Three weeks after his heart stopped on board the Esbach Quintana, Esbjorn was transferred to a hospital in Denmark, where he was finally able to see his parents again. We came in and we just stood there and it was just so touching. Uh, you know, we cried, all of us. We have seen him on the screen and we thought he looked normal and now we saw him and he was more or less just uh, bones. He has lost 20 pounds in that time. We could see all the scars on his chest and the scar from the tube and the feeling of him being less of him that was heartbreaking. Suddenly he was my little kid again. You know, it was, it was really, yeah, that was tough. The minute I saw my parents, I don't remember what they said. I broke down in tears. And I don't, I don't know, it wasn't really because I was feeling something I just could feel suddenly I burst down in tears and uh, uh, hugging my parents. I still didn't know 
that I really had had a heart attack and everything. With Esbjorn awake and on the road to recovery, word soon began to spread about his extraordinary experience. He was sitting up and actually a young doctor came by. He said he had heard this story, so he just had to see a person in his condition. And he was really shocked that he was standing up and actually ready to go down and pick up his own food. He said, that's not normal. (laughs) An understatement to say the least. Although official statistics on such a thing are hard to come by, it may just be that no one has had CPR outside of a hospital whose body was not hypothermic for as long as Espion and survived without debilitating neural damage. It's estimated that his heart stopped for 104 minutes in total. In Denmark, doctors finally established what had gone wrong with Espion's heart in the first place. He was missing part of his right aortic valve, through which blood enters the heart. It was decided that Esbjorn would need a pacemaker, a small electric device that will keep a heartbeat on track if it were to fail again. But that meant having to stop Esbjorn's heart all over again. We're so scared. Uh, we had been told what they would do. They would put him down again to sleep and open and take the veins from his chest to do this bypass. I was just thinking, well, he's back now. Why, why, why do this one more time? So I was really, um, I was really worried. I had to put my my belief in the science and in what they know. I was just told, you're going to this operation. We're going to shut off your heart. For me, I had really started to feel the pain because they had started to dose me down on the morphine so I didn't get addicted to it. In my head, I just remember, if it makes the pain go away, then do it. The operation was a success and passed without a hitch. I stayed in a hotel close to the hospital and uh, was there until he was released. And then he came home and a big group of his friends was actually coming over. All of my closest friends had met up outside of my home and stood waiting with a sign saying, Welcome home, Espion. So it was a very great experience to see them all again. Over the next few months, Esbjorn's health continued to improve. A therapist told him that it was useful to make attainable goals, small steps that would help him gradually get better. But for Esbjorn, there was only one goal he cared about. We have something called a sailing doctor who evaluates you if you are fit to go back to sea. And of course, there was also the psychological check of How is my reaction to it? Am I myself mentally fit for this? Or do I still have traumas about it? You know, in the beginning, when we start talking about it, I knew that he wanted to go back. And in my heart, that was also what I wanted for him. But I also wanted him to be home a little bit longer. 
But on the other hand, he also said, please, mom, let me do what I do. In November, almost seven months to the day, having been given a clean bill of health, Esbjörn returned to work on board the Esvot Quintana. I think it was around the 13th of November. I stepped back on the boat. They arranged everything very nicely that day. My parents actually got the chance to come out sailing, telling them how everything happened here and here, getting them closer to what my work is all about and how my team saved me. To be honest, it was just like normal. For a long time, we actually thought, why should it happen at sea? Why didn't it happen at home and so on? But actually, I'm really happy that it happened where it did, because what I have learned afterwards that if it was happened in a normal way, he probably wouldn't have been here today. Because after 45 or 50 minutes, they normally would just stop. When I talked to the crew, I was, first of all, very impressed about the work that they had been doing. I mean, that was making the difference. Even though the doctor said stop, they were doing all they could, as we all should. And I mean, this story should be a learning for everyone. Never give up. For me personally, I do this so people learn the importance of doing CPR. It's a thing that can save lives. It's not just a thing on movies. It's a thing that actually works in real life. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.